You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Lynn Alden, um, it is um, a spectacular pleasure uh, to be to be with you today on behalf of the Real Vision crew, who have again, with their immense generosity, thrown the universe at us and put us together. And who knows? Well, I know something. We're going to try and keep this. We're going to keep it kind of rapid because I've got a plane to catch. I'm going back to London. Um, and so I think we're going to try and wrap in 60 minutes. Um, but let's kind of play games, you know, like let, let's pretend it's an episode of billions. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's not actually. But, you know, the people, they kind of go, sometimes I, I get pumped um, across the tapes and I start writing and, and you know, our, our dear fellow, great, um, and I have to say with great respect, Luke Groman, he, um, I do use him. He, he, he brings out um, a rage in me, but it's good because you know, he's working at it. And I always regard you two as being part of the same fight club. Um, so it's, um, and that's to say that I, I, res- I respect the, the hard work in the endeavor of both of you. Um, and it's incredible how much I think we agree with. And sometimes it tends to be just perhaps emphasis. Which, which separates us. But it's those tiny little details sometimes that makes all the difference. So I hope to explore all of that. So how it used to be with me, my guys would and girls would, would, would put people in front, front of me because I never saw anyone. I'd be like, yeah, you know, I listen to music. <laughs> I read books. Um, but every now and again, and indeed in, in 2007, I had the opportunity to meet that Deutsche uh, trader, Greg, um, with the, the mortgage-backed uh, trade. And, and, and back then, it was like the first meeting was catastrophic, the second was mediocre, and the third was revelatory. Um, so so these, these things do work. So let's kind of, like I say, let's role play um, if, if you may indulge me, and I may go back to pretending I'm, I'm a hedge fund kind of manager. And you're one of these people, these kind of free spirits that, that's out there um, and, and having ideas, and you've got your own thing and your own attitude. So, so bring it on, Lynn. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, uh, I think this is a really good conversation we can have set up. And so I've seen that you've been uh, pretty active on Twitter lately. Uh, you're also putting out YouTube comment content. So what has you kind of amped up lately? And what, uh, you know, what, what brought out the animal spirits with you, uh, for example, in the conversation with Luke or just more generally? I mean, there's, there's a general point, uh, which is my, my car, car crash <laughs> reawakening this year. Um, so having spent two or so years after the closure of my macro fund, having run it for 15 years. Um, I'm going to publish a, a film I made in London shortly. And, and it's, it's going to be odd, and I'm going to have to send out a few tweets kind of trying to explain background. And it's me trying to tell a bit of my story, but I fear it's going to come across as like um, hedge fund rap. Um, but it does detail kind of where I came from kind of not belonging to a tribe, um, taking my own responsibility to see things. Um, and then just um, 
kind of getting the vibe that's coming down the railroad track that there's 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 danger or indeed opportunity approaching, but it's still way off. And the challenge at the very beginning was to convince others of the imminent prospects to make or, or to lose money. I have to say, I struggled for the best part of a decade uh, to convince people to step aside uh, from that rail track. Um, and I'm sure many people know my story. I, I met with Chris Benodi and, um, you know, the game, we, we called it misbehaving, uh, but it was the curiosity to see things, to see things differently, but using, essentially using the, the technology of the 16th or 17th century via these um, bar charts and technical charts from Japanese rice traders. And like I say, the rest is history. But this, this year, um, and, and with the film that I'm going to release, I, I kind of want to say that I feel stronger being shorn of the hedge fund. Um, it's such a weight to carry around because there's nothing like just the, the white fury of, of being responsible and the loneliness of being responsible for for other people's money. And what I'm finding is actually that, and maybe this is what, what's facilitating and, and helping you with some of your inspired calls, but it's so much baggage. And they, they we're just better thinkers not, not having that. And for me, and, and again, some of the, when I come back at people, it's just the pretense of, of what we're trying to do. We haven't, we haven't visited the future. We haven't seen the future and we're guessing. Um, and so I don't like, I don't like it when it's portrayed as science and when it's portrayed as fact. And I much, and that's why there is a, a method to my madness. I would rather present myself as being a bit kooky because I think that's more an, a more honest portrayal of having uh, this preposterous notion that you can see something. So to sum up to your question uh, or parts of your question, this, this year I felt that I still had a voice I'm kind of proud of some of the threads that I've put together, proud that actually I could do a thread and the content and the fact that I'm getting people engaged with it. Sure. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's certainly important uh, for people to, you know, kind of analyze things in terms of probabilities rather than certainties. Uh, because, you know, there's always one of those things where you might have, there might be say seven big variables involved in what, you know, what the direction of a specific asset class is going to be. And you could get six of them right. And there's one thing you're not understanding about the seventh variable or something just totally unexpected happens uh, and things change. So I think it's, you know, it's, I always kind of focus on probabilities and I think some of the best investors out there do, it's all about kind of the risk reward at any given time, you know? And so, you know, for me, uh, I, I do think, you know, I can imagine that, 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 uh, you know, managing a fund would be extraordinarily stressful. I mean, that, that's, that's well known in the industry and, you know, huge rewards, but also just massive burdens that come along with that. And so, you know, one thing I've kind of focused on is, is marrying kind of the, 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 I enjoy writing. So I, I marry kind of the, the research aspect with that. So I, you know, I manage uh, model portfolios, for my fund, and they're actually real money portfolios rather than paper portfolios, but I have the advantage of, you know, putting them out there for clients, but it's only my own money, whereas they, they can choose to use the research, uh, however it kind of fits their own goals. And so there's definitely kind of, uh, you know, uh, somewhat of a less stressful approach there and allows for in some ways more freedom of expression to, you know, I can write these really big kind of articles and kind of express my view in a way uh, so that people can kind of interpret it however they want. And so I think that's, uh, I know you've been focusing heavily uh, and I, I know some of the the intersections on, on Twitter, for example, have really focused on uh, international trade and, you know, what's going to happen with the dollar, 
uh, what's you know uh, you know who's kind of responsible for some of the mercantilist uh, policies that are out there. Uh, so I don't know if you wanted to uh, elaborate a little bit on that, how you're thinking about uh, you know some of the things that have you amped up lately uh, as it pertains to trade. With trade, yeah, and and I get amped because the trade thing just brings in the fact the rest of the world has always. Okay, so the the U.S. leads leads from the front, and so it is uh, understandable that there can be envy, and that you know the big guys, the one that everyone kind of behind their back, they want to say, hey, you know, they want to say uh, bad things about them. But there's a saying in markets that when those that that know something the the best, when they love it the least, that's when there are opportunities, and I, I feel a little bit like that. With the dollar, I would like to present the dollar as a as a, as a best opportunity. You know, tr- trading a kind of a, a G seven currency pair is really, really, really difficult, um, and certainly not my ambition. But um, you expect a non US audience to kind of um, be derogatory, if you will, to to US foreign policy and US monetary policy and and the footprint that it leaves on the rest of the world. Um, but when I hear it more and more stateside. From those who are supposed to love it most, but seem to love it least, um, and and so our, our absent friend Luke, um, he he does. I only notice it because he flags it. it come, I get a notification, and he will say something, and I am way way too sensitive. But um, I think it's kind of black and white. You've you've got big fascist, a big fascist regime called called China, um, and then you have the opposite, and it's called America, um, and they're. Both of them are getting things right and getting things wrong. Uh, if we want to use this term mercantilism, China is the latest foreign entity to adopt mercantilism. Um, it's a well-trodden path. Um, it can be a torturous path in the course of the last 100, 150 years, of course. Um, it came to prominence with, with, the, with Germany, um, um, who was... Uh, the, the second adopted to the industrial revolution, and so be, being number one, you're, you're oh yes, you're a trailblazer, but number two, you can skip a lot of the pain and 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 reach your objectives quicker. And Germany began to obviously uh, match, if not sub- supplant, the UK, and then you know we get this crazy First World War. So it's always at the, the background. I, I certainly never like to engage in those kind of you know, we're, we're going to have wars and, and, and all of that. The markets are hard enough. And before China, of course, it was Japan. So, but, but China's using a, a policy um, and it it requires a, a willing host. The U.S. is, is a, a willing host. The U.S. is willing to receive. The U.S. is essentially a dumping ground. It is willing to receive um, other people's savings. They call it surplus savings. But I would be a bit pejorative and I would say that these are savings which come almost from the kind of fascist command nature of how those economies are controlled, which is to say that there is a conscious decision by bureaucrats to take away potential wealth from their citizens. It's a kind of game of chess. And that potential wealth that I'm talking about is essentially to kind of act like a break on the upwards appreciation that their uh, foreign currency wishes, the direction it wishes to go. So uh, CNY or Remimbi wants to go trade higher versus the dollar big because it would kind of equalize in terms of trade. Yeah. Um, 
And the Chinese would accept that, but they would rather that something that could happen in the space of two years perhaps occurs over between 10 and 15 years. Now, that decision is robbing Chinese citizens of purchasing power, which I would call wealth. You know, any, any big ticket item produced in the US would be 10, 15% cheaper to a Chinese citizen if the currency was allowed to, to move in that direction. And the mechanism how they can control this is via reserves. Um, Chinese exporters have very little cause to, to need or use US dollars in their, in their daily activity. And so all of those dollars get sweeped up by SAFE, you know, the reserve manager of the, of the Chinese government. Um, and then they, get, they, they sit there. And I would say the mistake that people make is to think of reserve managers as like hedge funds or regular investment portfolio managers. They're not. They're not there to make a commercial return. They're there to make a sovereign return, to return the goals and the ambitions of the bureaucrats at the very centre. And, and that's what takes us into this vexed issue about um, the dollar, um, the, the role of these reserve managers, I think, in preserving the status quo, which is a dollar that never weakens enough. Yeah. And therefore, in doing so, it creates a, I want to use the word, almost insatiable appetite, but insatiable, I guess, has to be cautioned by if the circumstances are correct. So I would say you get an insatiable demand for US treasuries or dollar assets when when the dollar breaks levels and looks as if it's um, depreciating rapidly, that they are called in to kind of um, to, to buy dollar assets because, because again, that, that would thwart their ambition. So that's kind of some of the color. Now, I, I know you, you're out there with kind of a, a lot of the same thoughts, but perhaps a nuance which differs. So I, I don't know if there's something you can inject into that. Yeah, so I, I actually agree with uh, virtually all of that. I think that's a phenomenal uh, summary of it. And so one of my focuses is kind of on the structural forces behind that. And so you brought up, you know, that, that many of Americans are increasingly kind of critical of the current monetary system. And I think that's in large part because, you know, there are there are some of those like, you know, like us that work in technology or, or finance or uh, government, whatever the case may be, that that benefit from this current system. Uh, but for example, those accumulated trade deficits over the over several decades, uh, they really hurt a large portion of middle middle America. And so that's, you know, we're seeing rising populism both in the U.S. and elsewhere. And there's an increasing sign that the system that's been structured for the past 50 years or so, we can call it the petrodollar system, is, is beginning, uh, you know, to, to become you know, not just uh, problematic for the rest of the world, but also problematic for the United States. And so one of the things I focus on when it comes to mercantilist nations is that they're, they're partially incentivized by the current system to do it because the whole, the whole purpose of the petrodollar system is that, you know, we, the United States tries to enforce its hegemony in the sense that all global energy pricing occurs in dollars. Uh, so all nations need dollars. And so then there's this, this constant demand for the dollar. But then in order to have that system function, we have to have a tremendous amount of dollars out in the system. And so that's kind of the, the, re, the retooled version of the Triffin dilemma uh, that he proposed about, you know, the flaw in the Bretton Woods system. And that's, you know, kind of come back to roost here in the petrodollar system as well. And so that, that, that's good because that's, that's let's, let's stop there because there's a lot there that I kind of want to disagree with. Um, sure. And again, and again, it's just, it's nuances. Yeah. So I, it's because when I listened to what you said there, and if I read it, 
in a tweet, I get kind of enraged and I start going, da, 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 uh, because there's this sense of bully boy compulsion. I don't think anyone is compelled um, to price in dollars. Um, if there is a compulsion, it is a, a commercial best practices compulsion. I don't think there's a kind of there's going to be a warship, you know, on your coastline if you are if you're not doing this. That there are uh, networking um, effects which tend to override all other factors. Um, I think the flaw in the Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods, Woods one, if you will, was that really it was an effect gold standard, that it still um, required um, this insistence that money be um, anchored to something that couldn't kind of move. And, and the whole lesson that I certainly I take, and, and I believe the Federal Reserve wished to communicate on the, what, the 91st birthday of Milton Friedman when they famously declared um, that they'd got it wrong in, in the events that led up to the Depression was again there there was it was such a rigid anchor that the system just broke you know if you don't have fluidity and things that can kind of you know go with the, these great storms then the entropy the and the the the, the break and, and the fed was kind of saying a lot of that so i you know the bread and woods got better the, the talk about inflaming people closing the gold window in 71 made the system i want to say better right um, and what people neglect and very much is is jeff snyder and you know anyone that's reading my tweets will know that i attend the the, the euro dollar university with with Emil and jeff and and jeff jeff's done a great job in just throwing light onto that euro dollar market this invisible web of offshore banks who accept dollar deposits. And you you brought in this term petrodollar. And, and you're quite right because, of course, at the same time, shortly after the gold window, we had the, the oil embargo uh, from our Arabian friends. And the price of oil, remind me, it went from what, like two and a half bucks to 10 bucks, I think, or four to 10 of those kind of magnitudes. And so these Bedouin nations <laughs> in the middle of nowhere uh, received dollars, and those dollars went on deposit, not physically within, within the United States of America, but within banks in Paris and Brussels and anywhere else. And they were therefore able to use the reserve fractional reserve lending and, and create, create money. Uh, that's where the so the petrodollar comes from that happenstance that we had this oil embargo shortly after the gold window closed, uh, and it allows you to use this. It's this. It's, it's all part of this gambit, and it's almost like warship diplomacy. We're the hegemon, and you've got to you've got to use dollars or else. And I would say, no one's compelling. No one's compelling. And you know. And finally, forgive me, but. If I was an Australian, I mean, look at Australia as an example. Why on earth would I, why would I want Remimbi? Why would I want Russian pieces of paper, right? I would want dollars. So again, I don't see that, I don't see any hegemonic misbehavior in that dynamic. Well, so if you go back, you know, all the way to the beginning of the system, it was founded, uh, you know, with the U.S. and Saudi agreement. Uh, so it was there were intentional choices in setting that up. And then I agree from there. 
network effects played a very large role. So once it starts happening globally, then you start having global financing happening. So we have all that dollar-dominated debt that a lot of us like to talk about outside of the country. And so it does become a network effect. There are still occasionally military actions or sanctions that are used to enforce that. Uh, you know, Dictators that end up pricing their oil on something other than dollars generally have a track record of being taken out in, in the next couple of years, and then their country goes back to pricing oil in dollars. You or so? You've been reading that. The you probability is not great. Book about the guy who, well, whatever. And, and if, for example, one of the things that, if you look at modern hotspots, for example, the Nord Stream 2 hotspot's been the latest one. So the U.S. keeps layering sanctions on sanctions uh, on the fact that, you know, Russia is building that pipeline in Germany. And so on one hand, we, we have this, you know, uh, you know, increased uh, populist and political incentive to try to narrow the trade deficit. On the other hand, we're still, uh, you know, trying to enforce uh, some degree of, of, of dollar-only energy pricing out there. Now, the, I, there are signs that the network effect is beginning to fray. So, for example, if you look at, uh, you know, trade between Russia and Europe, or Russia and China over the past two, three, four years, it actually is beginning to de-dollarize. Uh, so we're starting to see uh, partially it's going up in euros. Uh, so even between China and Russia, uh, their uh, the trade, uh, the percentage of their trade that's happening in euros is increasing. And we're also seeing that, of course, between Russia and Europe. Uh, but then in addition, we're seeing some increase in their local currencies as well. So what we're seeing is some degree of decentralization, where the dollar still plays an important role. In, in global energy markets, but we are starting to see some alternate payment systems around the margins. Uh, and so uh, we basically have had multiple decades in a row of you know just accumulated trade deficits. And the United States, they actually have tools that they can end this at any time, uh, but instead they've kind of perpetuated the system. What are those tools? What are those well, for example, they can gauge in some of the same mercantilist processes of other countries. Like they can, for example, move their currency lower whenever they wish to, and they just they so far... That's my that's my my principal point that that the hegemon uh, it's like the mercantilists came in and they, they like like I need a haircut, but um, they they cut cut the hair of Samson. Um, the the U.S. is in a bind in a world where everyone has a fiat currency. In a world where everyone is is Switzerland, okay, the U.S. cannot devalue because I I I print a trillion. I'm like you know I've got we used to have like in historic newspapers and stuff. It was a brown grainy image of a, a poor desolate family with a wheelbarrow with banknotes going to buy a, a baguette. You know, I, I have this thing. Look, boom, one trillion dollars. Boom, two trillion dollars. Boom, three trillion dollars. I'm on the market. Yeah, I've just printed three trillion uh, uh, Swissy. Uh, give me your bid on uh, dollar Swissy. Per perfect. Buy me dollars. Super. You can't push the dollar down in an environment where you have digital infinite printing presses. You can't. It's just not possible. Well, we saw it's possible this year. Oh, we're talking. Oh. We're, we're talking like we're, we're talking the the volatility of six or seven percent that you would expect to see in a in a G seven cross. Yeah, but I mean they can easily uh, continue some of those same policies that they have been this year. Now, but there's also alternative things that they haven't done at all. So, for example, the United States has not employed any of the same tactics that Switzerland is. So, what Switzerland does is they print a ton of money, they buy foreign assets, they keep building their reserves. They're one of they're they're arguably the most egregious uh, currency manipulator out there. Uh, and the United States at any time 
could do similar tactics, but chooses not to. Instead, we maintain the smallest uh, you know, global reserves, including gold, as a percentage of GDP of virtually any country out there. And that, that's been, because we're the axiom of the system, we are the global reserve currency, we've chosen not to engage in, in basically you know, printing money, buying, buying gold, buying foreign currency you know, bonds, and, and building any sort of exchange reserves other than something like 2% of GDP. Uh, but the U.S., if they wanted to engage in that that uh, currency war, they could. The U.S. has had has had no agenda and has no has had no desire to enter into a trade conflict with its neighbors. My only point is that so the U.S. GDP versus Switzerland must be the U.S. must be what um, fifteen times the size of the Swiss economy. I'm guessing, but <laughs> with one of these, you can print as much money as the United States. Yeah, it's 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 you know so. The U.S. I like the fact that it doesn't have the it hasn't displayed any intent to kind of um, to have conflict with its, its its neighbors. It seems to it seems to stand alone in in that regard. Well, until recently, you saw, for example, under the Trump administration, there was a renewed effort uh, to try to narrow the trade gap, and you know it, uh, it was unsuccessful because they didn't actually get to the the root cause of it. They actually didn't employ a lot of the tools they could have, and they focused more on the on the tariff angle. So. You know the the, the trade, yeah the trade deficit is is, is bigger uh, you know over the past couple of years rather than smaller. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah. So let, let, let's re- reverse it a little bit and, and let me throw a, a hard question back at you because you say that, and, and you use, you know, you, let's use your terminology, the petrodollar currency system of the last 50 years. So in, in trade finance, um, it is supposedly impossible for a country to perpetually run a trade deficit. Um, and the US now has done it for 50 years in a row. So it's not forever, but, you know, it's kind of uh, stretching things. Um, and you would say, and clearly we have we have been all of us are alarmed at these populist uprisings that brought us Brexit and brought us Trump. And Trump's just the name. Um, you know, the the great thing about America and its liberal democracy is that they can sense that things aren't right. And, and Trump was a, a first iteration, and and probably second iteration will be wrong. But at some point, that curious mind will find an iteration that kind of can resolve it. I don't think I agree. Trump hasn't resolved it. But my point to you is, what was what was broken in the system? What was the defect that you want to fix? Okay, I hope so. Hold that, and I offer you my because. I would say my because is. People in the Midwest, people in the UK, and let's generalize, a a large subsector of that enraged population are, let's call it unskilled labor pools. And the the fact of the last 50 years, not even 50, the last 30 years, is that the breaking down of some of these fascist imposed boundaries brought on a billion plus new people. And so there's a kind of inevitability whereby if you decide that 
it's just not satisfactory that someone should live on a dollar a month, let's say, or whatever the figure would be for a peasant in China 25 years ago. Okay. And you want to bring them closer to your world, then kind of like something's, someone's got to pay for it. And the, the person that pay, pays for it is the person kind of that, that was unskilled. And we've just, we, we brought on a billion unskilled people to compete with them. So to my mind, the system, I don't think that's breakage. I think the system has had to deal with that, but without a doubt, there have been losers. But I sense that you think there's actually a defect. Well, I think it's more that the, that the system has essentially run its course. And so I, if I were to describe a defect, it goes back to the idea that of, the, of the intentional uh, emphasis on, on uh, you know, U.S. policy promoting uh, most global energy being priced in dollars. And that, that could have made sense decades ago, but just makes less sense now. And so, but we are starting to see that change. We're starting to see, you know, uh, multi-currency energy deals. We're starting to see, uh, you know, alternative payment systems develop and technology makes that easier. Why, and does, so, why does that change? And I, that, that just makes my blood boil. Who gives a royal F about petrol dollars? Like who cares about oil? I mean, we're not going to be using oil in the damn future. Who cares? How do you solve the the disenfranchisement of unskilled labor by changing the dynamics of how you price a barrel of crude is absurd. Well, one is because uh, that would, uh, over time, allow for devaluation of the dollar. And so it goes back to this thing where we have... What is that? I'm sorry, but I cannot think of any direct channel whereby that happens. Well, I already discussed uh, where it can happen. You can, for example... If you're, we already agreed, for example, that the, the, for example, Chinese currency has a long-term tendency to want to appreciate to close that trade gap, and so, but of course, all these mercantilist nations do varying degrees of pushing back on that. Now, China made a decision to push back on it less, you know, back in like 2013 or so, uh, but we still have, com- uh, you know, countries like Switzerland that are much smaller that are still aggressively going along that route. I disagree. China made no, no pushback on uh, trying to. Um, trying to allow the Rumimbi to... uh, Let me rephrase that. It it, it experimented for a year or so with the notion of allowing the the currency to move a little bit. Again, because I think you guys are part of a a gang that see the world that way. Um, They're automons for me. They're they're drones. They're cyborgs. They they, they have no... There's no subtlety about what they're doing. Dollars go into their system and they recycle those dollars into reserve assets, principally treasuries, to maintain a glide path in a very, very modest appreciation of the renminbi. That, well, that and hasn't changed. They have until well, it changed in 2013. So, for example, China holds less treasuries now than they held seven years ago. And they, they announced back then accumulating treasuries is no longer in our best interest. And that's instead when they launched the Belt and Road Initiative. And so instead of uh, continuing the cycle of taking all their dollar surpluses and putting them into treasuries, they started putting them into dollar loans uh, for in- infrastructure, uh, mostly around the developing, de- developing world. So it's Eurasia, Africa, Latin America, East, a- East Europe. The propaganda, okay? A reserve asset as a sovereign nation, okay? Uh, that... China is a, to quote my, my great, wonderful friend, Michael Pettis, China is a volatility machine. Who suffered? Where was the greatest pain inflicted uh, with the Great Depression? It was inflicted on supposedly the strongest member. Who was the strongest member? The U.S. was the mercantilist at the time. The U.S. was running all the current account 
and trade yep. subsidies with the rest of the world. Who went down harder when you took demand out of the system? It's the mercantilists that absolutely wither dramatically because they have nothing internally to support themselves. Okay, So as a reserve manager, you can talk with bouquets of flowers about expanding in your, your Asian silk road to, to Europe, etc. But this is all about having reserves that you know that you will have to call upon, you will have to turn them back into your local cash to bail out the morons. And that's not Chinese. Globally, we all become morons at some point in terms of credit, and there's a credit accident and it blows up. A reserve manager stands there and it's like, bing, sell my treasuries, bing, I've got my renminbi back, and bing, I've just solved the, the domestic problems. You don't go, mm, gee, I've got a trillion dollars invested in Vietnam railroad stock. I mean, you know, it, this is just, they, I, I feel like China is, is a propaganda that you guys have all swallowed. This should be like a health plan sponsored by the PBOC. It doesn't, it doesn't snack up. I prefer focusing on numbers more so than narratives. So basically, they they pointed out back then that we're you know it's no longer necessary to accumulate treasuries, and then therefore what we saw was they stopped accumulating treasuries, and then instead what they saw was they they dramatically ramped up uh, dollar funding finance for infrastructure around the world because yeah. for China, current, current, quote me current account experience from 2012 to today. Okay, uh, and what do you find? You find that the system began to lose uh, demand. You, you've, you discover that there was a huge credit bubble created by the euro dollar, offshore euro dollar, that was throwing and creating money, and it was all being directed into the nirvana of China, this, this thing that was going to supplant and take over the world. So you could get financing for container ships. You could get financing for any commodity. You could get financing for agricultural land. You could get, fin- you could get financing, and it all went in to China. Okay, that was the creation of dollars. So when our system, this dark web, creates dollars, they buy treasuries. When our system goes, mm, might have got that wrong. You know, this kind of is beginning to. China gets to seventeen percent in terms of GDP to global GDP. Japan got to fifteen. Russian got Russia got to about the same figure. So uh, China pushed it out by two percentage points, but then slowed. And, and so we start going, oh, bugger, we've just made a mistake again. And so we stop throwing and transporting money to them. And what happens? Current account surplus goes woo, to zero. It's only pushed up in the aftermath of this grotesque virus thing, okay? The flight path was no dollar creation in terms of the Chinese, and therefore no dollar treasury asset purchases. Again, it's... it's this, they are Ottomans. They are slaves to the rhythm of our private sector, our private commercial bank dollar generation and its direction towards China. Forgive me, I'm very passionate about this. Yeah, so for China, they have to balance both their reserve requirements with the, you know, their insatiable demand for commodities. And so one of their interests has been basically securing commodity rights around the world. And so that's been one of their incentives because they, it is true that they have this big demographics problem. And so that's why they've shifted more and more towards trying to uh, you know, have their infrastructure around the country rather than relying purely on what's inside the country. And so it's always a challenging thing for any emerging market to thread that needle from shifting to an export-driven nation to a consumption-driven nation. That, you know, it's, that, it's that trap that a lot of uh, countries fall into. 
And so China is currently currently rounding that turn like a race car. And so the question is, how you know are they going to flip off the rails? Or are they going to are they going to do that turn properly and and shift to more of a consumption based model? In that process, you know, instead of just constantly reinvesting their their surpluses into treasuries, they've you know basically emphasize hard assets around the world. Why do they need hard assets, Lynn? Right? In the, the first decade of this century, they used more steel in, 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 in a decade than the United States did in 100 years. Why do they need hard assets? Well, mainly they want commodity exposure. Uh, because China is a big importer of commodities, and so they, they could have as they, the commodities could be as cheap as chips to the Chinese if they allowed Remimbi to trade at five. If they allowed markets to push it to levels whereby they didn't have that comparative advantage domestically, why not pursue that policy? Why do and do you think it's wise to? So again, the the, the danger with this hard asset thing is you go to Mozambique and you buy a stranded coal asset in the center of the of the the country. Uh, it's stranded because the, the economics of pulling it out of there and getting it to the coastline, building railroads through mountains and, and all the rest of it, um, a kind of 20, 30-year project in an environment where the administration is going to change several times and they're going to default. So it kind of requires you actually to become imperialist and actually say, I don't care about your domestic uh, regulations. I'm, I'm doing this and I will take this out come what may. I mean, it's just, you know. So my, my presumption, so I don't know how safe it is. I don't know the wisdom given how much they've already, how much concrete and steel. China doesn't need any more commodities. It needs to, needs to get over the serfdom. It needs to overcome the fascist dictate that says you as a citizen are not allowed to make your own decisions the way we are in the West. Well, I'm always I'm always in favor of freedom, so I wouldn't argue with that. I think you know I'd love to see China open up more and become more free. Um, I'm just talking about the uh, strategy of their current approach. You think this current approach is is valid? So that the approach that you've outlined is um, that you believe actually that they are willing to allow their currency to rise more rapidly, to not be in control of its ascent. You believe that they um, somehow attribute a value to uh, to treasuries and, and a negative value at that vis-a-vis other assets. So you're again, I feel like you're comparing China to an investment advisor. They say, "Oh, I wouldn't touch that, but I would touch that because of its investment merits." And and finally, again, you're coming back and saying it, it's in China's best interest to to own these. Um, if you will, precious or assets that you can't make more of in the manner that you can fiat currency. Yeah. Well, I know I agree that they don't they don't operate it like a like a for profit manager. Uh, so what we can go by is what they state what they state their intentions are, and then more specifically what what the numbers actually start doing after they state their intentions. So when they say it's no longer interested to buy treasuries, and then they stop buying treasuries, and then they start buying other things. We can explore what that reason is. And so, for example, you mentioned, uh, you know, that they don't need commodities anymore. One one thing to keep in mind is that their, you know, their oil per, uh, consumption per capita, for example, is still far lower than the United States. And you know, because they have like four times as many people. And so, as they transition to more of a middle income uh, country, uh, they still have a pretty, uh, you know, big appetite for uh, energy in general, gas, oil. Can China become a middle income? society because 
what have we done in 25 years? We've taken, we've raised per capita. So you're, you're the numbers person. I'm, I'm just me. I make numbers up. I'm, I'm narrative. I want to say 25 years, we've taken per capita GDP from a thousand to 15,000. There, thereabouts. Correct me. That's directionally correct. Yes. Yeah, directionally correct. Okay. And we agree that a consequence of that has been uh, to displace um, millions of, millions, I mean, hundreds of millions of folks. Uh, outside of, of China, uh, unskilled folks, um, because of the additional competition in the labour market, um, and the ruptures that we've seen from Brexit to to, to Trump, uh, and rumblings of further populist movements, can how how can we take? And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but how can we take China from 17% of global GDP? To, to 25 or 30% without further disenfranchisement. Well, so I, I looked it up real quick. It's about 10,000 uh, per capita. 10, uh, and so what one thing I'd ask you is, for example, if we went back to disenfranchisement. So as China has become this big mercantilist nation, we can see, for example, that if you look at Japan's uh, trade balance, they're still balanced. We can look at Europe's trade balance, they're, they're still balanced. So uh, a lot of that disenfranchisement has come from the United States specifically, rather than you know pulling it all from you know throughout the developed world, and so I think that's why it's important to focus on specific policy choices that the Ameri- that the United States is doing differently as it relates to the global monetary system or fiscal policy or geopolitical policy com- compared to Europe and Japan. But yeah. I think when when you take when you choose that path, Lynn, the U.S. is a is a bright shiny beacon. Because what are, what are, what is the difference? The difference is, um, and let's forget Japan for a second. I mean, let's just forget Japan. Uh, Europe again has has state-sponsored coercion. Okay, they put embargoes. So they, 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 you know, Trump was kind of trying to co- uh, uh, copy a lot of the, the European model. Um, you just can't import. The quant you can't import American cars into the UK into Europe, yeah? and likewise the, the Chinese equivalents. There is a quota, which ensures that all cars in Europe trade at a particular price. Buying an auto- automobile in the in the in Europe is like fifty percent more expensive than it is, okay, in the US. So again, you see that as a citizen, I'm a punchback. Like if they wouldn't interfere in my life, right? I could, my money would go further. I would be wealthier. But bureaucrats in Brussels, so okay, they're not fascists. Bureaucrats in in Brussels decide that it's better that we continue to make crappy French cars, right? And I'm not to be trusted. Give give me an extra three, four thousand dollars, and I might spend it on on other things. But I'm I'm not to be trusted in that. So the US is the only nation that's shown. The wisdom and the belief in in the ordinary person is you decide. Why do you want bureaucrats to decide? I'm not in favor of bureaucrats deciding. But that's but that's the principal difference. That's why the U.S. You know. So the, and then like all the and I know like to all of you people who are like writing now and saying, oh, the U.S. with big corporations, we sold out. You know, uh, Middle America. Yeah. Talk is cheap. Okay. Um, we brought China from a thousand. To ten thousand dollars per head, okay, by allowing those Chinese people to enter the global markets, 
and we didn't put quotas on products coming into the United States. And so whilst you were displaced as a low-skilled member of the community, at least whatever you were paid, and I know it was a pittance, but at least everything became cheaper in terms of what you wanted to buy. Now, there's nothing perfect about that, okay? But the alternative model is found in Europe. Unskilled labor are, okay, making semi-skilled labor are making crappy French cars at, at a price which is 1.5x market. Is that better? Mm, I just think the libertarian in me says, I want to burn that system down. And I, and I think populism hasn't ended. Yeah, not at all. And I think Europe will still have a say in where populism goes next. Yeah, I think I, I, you know, I also, you know, favor the the free market approach, and that's why I think in the next decade we're going to see increasing, uh, you know, alternate payment channels around the SWIFT system, around the dollar system, as it relates to global energy. And going back to the U.S. for a second, it depends on who it's benefited, right? So we talked about some of the downsides, for example, of being in Europe. United States, the median citizen, not the average, but the median citizen, so the middle, you know, the, the representative of the middle person has less wealth than, you know, the average Japanese citizen or the European citizen. We're also, you know, the United States is ranked uh, near the bottom of developed countries for social mobility. So whatever kind of social uh, status you're born into plays a larger role in where you end up in the United States compared to Europe and Japan, which goes against the, the narrative of kind of, you know, American as a, as a concept. Uh, more so than numbers based. I tell you, when people, I don't see lines outside the Japanese embassy. I don't see people going. I, I want a bit of. The, I want their action. Their action really feels merit, meritocratic versus what I am. I mean, I, I'm sure you can find figures for anything, but you know, the Rolling Stones made songs about Los Angeles, and they didn't make songs about Brussels. My friends and I are always in wonder at whenever you bring up um, um, the oil price, but. We'll let that be. Um, I respect um, differences. I think we could go on and on and on about the past and how we got here. Um, but I think the future demands that, that we offer some prognosis um, about what to do. I want to suggest several things to you and, then, uh, and, and you can do vice versa. Um, so for me, the principal problem of the world is we keep adding debt and the debt seems to be dysfunctional because it is not it is not adding to gdp which is to say that debt to gdp ratios keep rising you've got to think that that's making us vulnerable so any solution would be a solution that boosts global gdp um, and preferably uh, without needing additional debt okay so if i was to keep within our conversation I believe that there is a, a ready-made solution, which would be um, to, uh, to allow, and this is where we agree, which would, would be to allow the dollar uh, to fall. Um, the dollar falling, and so we, the DXY, the Dixie Index, is um, people sometimes prefer trade-weighted, but they all come out roughly the same, is trading in the low 90s, and a big move, a move which would be outside as volatility bands, would be to trade at 80, if not 75, if not 70. And at those levels, um, you have enriched the, the consumers, the individuals of countries like, like Germany and, and China. And, and with that, I think you would have 
you would have added to their wealth. And I believe that they would spend that bounty. And in spending that bounty, they would propel GDP, global GDP higher, and not necessarily without um, the, the need to add debt. We have examined, I've put to you that I think it is very hard for the US to do so, um, owing to the fact that with these digital infinite printing presses that from Switzerland to wherever else, you can summon up enough um, orders to buy dollars to, to thwart that. And so I've come back to the notion of, so I believe that it's, there is no choice. Other sovereign nations have to buy US treasuries and therefore, and I'm happy with that. And therefore my solution would be to charge them. I, I can't say I would charge them. I, I want to prophesize that market economics in the fullness of time and in its own wisdom will see the need for US treasuries to trade with a big negative handle and not 20 basis points, more like 200, 300 basis points. And I see a lot of acute justice in that, but I also see it as the only means available when you're being held hostage as this hegemon to the infinite printing presses of Switzerland et al. So too many words. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, I think I think a lot of these forces are going to play out naturally. So I think uh, you know, as we go forward several years, my base case is probably to see a weaker dollar. Uh, and I do think that there's a possibility in the, in the next, you know, call it three to six months, where we have this, you know, we have the winter. We we haven't we don't have the vaccines out yet. Uh, you know, I think we you know we can see more solvency issues in in that time period. So I you know I don't really have a strong view in that in that kind of shorter term. Uh, but I think once you get you know in a later 2021 2022. Uh, you know, the, the vaccines are hopefully effective, uh, you know, trade opens up more, uh, but the U.S. is still running these, you know, larger larger fiscal deficits as a percentage of GDP than most of the rest of the developed world. Uh, we also, of course, have that current account deficit, so we have a much larger twin deficit. Uh, so I do think uh, we're going to see weaker dollar regardless of what policymakers do. Uh, and so if they were to do policy choices that, you know, uh, you know further improve that, uh, I think that they can rearrange taxes. So, for example, uh, they could cut payroll taxes to, uh, you know, make U.S. labor more uh, competitive uh, at the cost of, you know, some other areas that they've that they've spent on. And so, I, you know, really kind of a, a, a more of an industrial centric policy if they ever wanted to have some of those uh, jobs come back. And so, because we've really doubled down on technology and finance over the past several decades, which has benefited, you know, I've I've benefited greatly from the system, but I, I think if they're going forward, I think we're going to see more and more populism uh, until uh, some of these imbalances start to work themselves out. And I think, you know, regardless of policy, they're, they're working themselves out gradually as the world becomes a little bit more decentralized uh, with its payment systems uh, and, and with, you know, based on, you know, all the fiscal monetary policy that's happening. Uh, and then U.S. policymakers can either, uh, you know, kind of uh, adapt to that or keep pushing back against on it. And I think it's, you know, there's going to be really kind of good trading opportunities around that uh, to see kind of how that's going. Yeah, I think I've got to put more coconut oil in my coffee. I'm becoming exhausted. The, um, 
many things have happened in the last 10, 15 years, uh, 20 years. If I look at the dollar index, it's kind of just like a, a noisy, a noisy line. Um, that would be my best guess. Um, I, I would see the the next five, not five months, but five years, 10 years being a continuation of that same noisy prices in the dollar index. Are you saying, what are you saying? Are you saying something different? Are you saying that um, you can see, let's take the flawed dollar index, but you're saying that you can actually see that trading at 80? I think so. I, I you know, So if you look back over the past 50 years, there have been uh, three really big dollar cycles. So we had the peak in the 80s, then the decline, then the peak in the late 90s, early 2000s, then the decline. Then we've had a peak up in you know uh, late 2014, early 2015. We've been in the strong dollar environment. Uh, and you know, but now that the Fed has shifted more towards dovish policy, uh, you know, they they stopped QT, they began QE, uh, they have interest rates, uh, you know, at the zero bound. Uh, they haven't gone negative yet. Uh, so, and combined with the very large fiscal deficits they're running, I do think you know at, at, we're going to see probably the next down leg in that in that dollar cycle. So another kind of uh, a downward move, similar to what we had in the early 2000s uh, or in the late 1980s. Now the the one in the 80s was more uh, designed. That was the Plaza Accord, uh, whereas the one in the in the 2000s was mostly due to you know a shift in all sorts of monetary and fiscal policy that was happening at the time. And so I, I kind of view it more like the the early 2000s uh, dollar decline, uh, and then going from there, I think you know because that you know that process can take several years to play out, and then from there, I, I think you know we're going to see more and more decentralized payment systems, and so I do think that relationship could change uh, more structurally a- after that decline. So basically, the Fed is pursuing all the same policies as every other central bank in the world. So the Fed's actions should be kind of irrelevant with regard to the price of the dollar. You're still working on. Um, it's essentially, you talk about a breaking of the system. So again, you, you said several things. Uh, these rally, the, these cycles in the dollar, the, the dollar rises when global commercial banks stop printing dollars. Yeah. Um, and the 2014 kind of benchmark or 2013 um, dovetails nicely with essentially the biggest private pit of, of, of dollar creation kind of closing down its operations. Um, so for me, the only way the dollar would fall appreciably is by um, the, the, the advent of, of the Fed actually coming in and challenging market forces. And that's the Fed's role. People keep saying, well, why don't you leave it to market forces? Well, why, why have a Federal Reserve? You have a Federal Reserve to kind of push beyond where the market is to provoke a reaction. You know, the, if, the Fed, if the Fed keeps claiming it wants to create, inf- the number one objective today for the Fed, it, it, it claims, is uh, to create inflation. Yeah? Uh, I'm the, the greatest believer in market forces. For the Fed to be true to its word, the Fed has, to, the market where, where it's setting nominal rates, and nominal rates are kind of, market-led or set at zero just now. The Fed has to go really negative. It has to go beyond the market to actually have any chance of achieving its objective, which is inflation. So I respect the market, but if you accept the need for central banks, and that's a big if, then you do need a central bank which is courageous enough to, to either go way below or way above the Fed just now is kind of trying to have its cake and eating. It's, it's got a, it's got a, a vanilla, it's got a beige monetary policy. And so we just sit there entrapped. 
And the other point I was going to say is dollar weakness comes when, again, the offshore dollar market wakes up and starts printing money again. Um, and I can't see that happening again kind of without some change in monetary policy. So what you're looking for is like an inverse Volcker moment. So instead of jacking yeah, no, rates up, you're looking for someone that jack interest rates negative. I, I think one thing that they that you know they're comparing it to is kind of the cost of doing that. So I, I think if they were to go sharply negative and do this big shock to the system, uh, I do think you'd see a weaker dollar. I do think you'd see uh, foreigners reducing their treasury holdings at that point uh, because they're paying at a negative nominal yield. Uh, but uh, in addition, uh, that would disrupt the U.S. banking system. That would further some of these asset bubbles that have that have you know benefited those of us at the top of the the, the income spectrum and 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 kind of further uh, you know disenfranchise. When you're challenging the status quo, you can always list lots of kind of you know worry notes. That's why people very rarely challenge the system. But at the at the core of it, I mean, you would again you described yourself as the numbers person. I think I'm right in saying that. Uh, the dollar accounts for 63 or 64% of all uh, global reserve assets. Uh, so someone's playing a game. Someone is deciding to overweight uh, dollars. Uh, and therefore, to my mind, uh, that, that's the target. You know, it's like, well, okay, so, okay. And, and so I'm, I'm saying to you that if you're one of these nations with when you should have like 13, 14% of dollars, but you've got 64%. Um, if treasuries have a minus three handle, like a negative 300 basis point handle, um, I, I, I still, I don't think you're going to do anything because if you, if you pull back, if you, if you sell those treasuries, yeah, maybe you, you would come back and say, yeah, you, you'd buy gold, you'd buy other dollar, uh, dollar assets. Maybe you'd buy a little bit of that. But again, at the heart of a reserve manager is liquidity and it's the need you, you will be fired or worse, you could be sent to prison if there is a great global crisis and you were the reserve manager that kind of, because you were dissatisfied with the minus three return from treasuries, you sold them and you bought stocks or you bought precious metals and there was another virus or another crisis and you went to sell those assets and you found that you couldn't sell them and your bureaucrats at, at home decided that you weren't doing your job. I mean, that's... The diff- different dynamics. So one is that they can shift over time just by not buying more. So rather than you know a country like say Russia did and actually dump treasuries, you can have a situation like China where they just say we're not going to dump our treasuries. We're just going to stop buying more, and we're going to we're going to reduce our you know reinvestment of of, of treasuries over time. Uh, so that that's you know that's the more gradual option that they do. And then also I know you've pushed back, but this gets back to global energy pricing because it, if a country knows that most of its obligations are in dollars. So if all the commodities that they import, energy-based and non-energy-based, are mostly priced in dollars, then it makes sense for them to have a very large dollar allocation in their reserves. However, as we see more and more development of payment systems in other currencies, then you can see more of a diversification within those reserves because it matches their import and their, you know, their commodity consumption profile. You did say... Russia dumped its treasury holdings. I always find these are fascinating conversations when people say things like that. Russia dumped its treasury holdings. I, I live a, a very simple life, not really giving a damn about the Lunatun uh, Russians. I don't think they dump their treasury holdings. Lynn, th- this, is, this has been, been wonderful. I, I have, as the viewers will have noted, I have 
faded very, very rapidly as I begin to think of the 15-hour travel back to London. I'm going to London to buy a Christmas tree, if you're wondering. Um, and I, I, I think we set off at a fantastic pace. And I, and I want to thank you for being more than up for kind of getting down there and giving me a good slap back, which I deserve. I think there's more gas in the tank for what should happen next. I think we, we, we could have another great session. So I think to have that, I, I, I kind of want to, I want to end here and, uh, and rush to the airport. Yeah. Thanks so much for the conversation. And, uh, you know, I hope you have a safe flight and uh, I know those flights can be brutal. So, uh, you know, best of luck going through that. I just hope I don't get arrested. I am just <laughs> such a gobby person just now. But we'll see. I'll, if, if I, you're allowed one call, can I call you? Sure. Okay. So keep your phone on tonight. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lynn. And thank you very much for seeing the real vision. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.